you don't actually sell your company to another company. There is no such thing as a company. It's an imaginary legal construct. There are people who work together in a group. This may sound like semantics, but it's not. Because once you understand that it's like, okay, I have to actually convince some people that they want to buy my company, it becomes more of a tractable problem. Or like, I have to sell my company to Twilio. Well, no, no, actually, you have to get Jeff Lawson to see that this thing is a solution to a problem that they have. And that's very different. Welcome to In-Depth, a show that surfaces tactical advice founders and startup leaders need to grow their teams, companies, and themselves. I'm Brett Burson, a partner at First Round, and we're a venture capital firm that helps startups like Notion, Roblox, Uber, and Square tackle company building firsts. On the In-Depth podcast, we share weekly conversations with startup leaders that skip the talking points and go deeper into not just what to do, but how to do it. Learn more and subscribe today at firstround.com. For today's episode of In-Depth, I am thrilled to be joined by Daniel Debo, a VP of Product for Demand at Shopify. Daniel's a repeat founder. His most recent startup, Helpful, was acquired by Shopify in 2019. Before that, he co-founded Ripple, which was acquired by Salesforce in 2011. His first startup, WorkBrain, was acquired by Infor in 2007. Given Daniel's gone through this process of starting a company and choosing to sell it to an at-scale business multiple times over his career, I'm excited to share his advice on how founders should approach the M&A process today. I think navigating acquisitions is one of the more underexplored topics in company building. And it's especially relevant right now, given that more founders may be considering the acquisition route these days. In our conversation, we go over everything a founder needs to know about the M&A process from top to bottom. We start by diving into what established companies can do to create an environment that attracts founders, as well as what conditions founders should look for in a potential acquirer. We also explore the concrete steps founders can take to build meaningful relationships with executives of all types, not just the corp dev team. Daniel shares tons of useful tactics, from how to spot clear buying signals from potential acquirers to the numbers all founders should lead with during initial conversations. He also shares his do-not-do list for first-time founders going through this process. We also get into the techniques he used to involve investors in the M&A process and how to communicate about a potential sale to the broader team. We end on his advice for succeeding inside a larger company post-acquisition and making the transition from founder to employee. This episode is a great listen if you're a first-time founder exploring M&A or a recently acquired employee that's now operating inside a larger org. But I think there are tons of great negotiating and sales tactics that anyone can draw from his experiences. And now my conversation with Daniel. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Excited for the conversation. Absolutely. Really glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Maybe one place to sort of start is given you've been on the entrepreneurial and founding journey a number of times, you've also sort of operated as an executive at scale. What do you think is great about being an employee? And how would you compare and contrast what's great about being a founder? Like most things in life, they both have pros and cons. And look, I think probably a few things. One is you have the scale and scope of a business so that when you launch products or you want to update them or grow them, there's just this natural distribution channel that you don't have to fight against when you're starting your startup. Second, there are people around you to help you and support you that does not exist inside of a startup. Third, when you call people pick up the phone. I'm calling from XYZ is different. I'm calling from like kagoodle.com or whatever it is. We've never heard of them. I'm not answering your call. So I think those are some of the real benefits that you have inside of a large org. There's a lot of very smart people who are there. And I think the last one, there is an existential terror that faces you almost every day as a startup founder, right? It is a level of stress that is really hard for people to appreciate. It's not that I don't have a stressful job today or that people who are execs in big tech companies don't have stress on their heads. They do. I just found that personally, it is a very different level of intensity. And so it's a little bit more sustainable in terms of lifestyle. And then what's great about being a founder? Well, I'm sure the people listening to this have some understanding, but it is the blank palette. It is the freedom. 
It is other than your board and your investors, which is a real thing, not having a boss. It is the ability to go make massive change. It is the people that you work with. You get to create the team, the culture, the opportunity, and then also speed. Like you can go really, really fast. So there's great things about being in both places. So in the context of an at-scale business that's either acquiring companies and talent or has decided they want more founder-oriented entrepreneurial talent inside of the company, what do you need to do? What are the conditions you need to create to allow that to happen if you're operating an at-scale business? I think there's a bunch of different components of that. Certainly you have to have a really effective pro-founder M&A function. That means people who are seen as helpful, people who are seen as honest, straightforward. You have to have a process that is founder-friendly, right? I think you have to have executives who are friendly to founders, and it doesn't have to be other founders themselves, but people in the company who are there to sponsor, support, guide, mentor, and teach people when they come in. Not all founders know everything, and certainly the transition from being a founder to being an effective executive can be challenging for people. And so you have to have people who are willing to mentor and support and see value in what founders can provide and also maybe forgive their trespasses a bit because sometimes they are a bit spicy in my experience. It's totally crucial to have a CEO who appreciates and values founders. And I've been lucky in both instances where I ended up to join companies having CEO founders who deeply respected the mindset of a founder, talked about it openly and made space in their time, whether it was like lunches or offsites or whatever to like create a community of those founder type folks around it. I think the last thing and something that Shopify where I am right now is just like openly say that you want people who have that entrepreneurial experience when you're hiring. So founders don't have to come necessarily through acquisition. People who've tried things, started companies, demonstrate a type of grit and ownership mindset that is a really good indicator often of success. And so actively making that part of your recruiting criterion is really helpful. You mentioned this kind of a little bit, but what about org design or specific rituals inside of a company that positions founders coming in to have a big impact and hopefully retain in the company? Yeah, that perennial question around the org design, which is like, hey, do we take this team and we own them and we let them kind of keep running on their own or do we assimilate them like the Borg <laughs> very quickly, as fast as possible? I think the answer to that is somewhat case specific depends on the scale of the business that's being acquired. I mean, is it an operating business or is it really a founder early on that product market fit or just getting scale? And so you'd have to calibrate what's appropriate. But I think the key thing here is understanding one size does not fit all. And it is very, very easy for a large organization to completely crush a small organization by just making a few of the wrong choices. I think related to that isn't just the org structure, is who are the sponsoring executives? Because I think those can make a really big difference of the energy and positivity that comes when an acquisition happens or lack thereof. I also think actually a really important component is that the M&A team that does these things sort of takes ownership and sponsorship of the success of founders as they move through the organization. So it's not like, hey, we bought you and we're on to the next one, but we actually care about you and they check in, they make sure that those folks are doing well, they talk with the execs around them. I kind of act as an extra layer to really support the founder and the team around them so that there's success. And I think it's a really smart thing for that to happen, especially when you're acquiring primarily talent, right? How do some of the ideas that you shared maybe express itself in your last journey when you were building Ripple for a number of years and then got acquired by Salesforce and then spent almost four years building at Salesforce? Yeah, I was acquired by at Salesforce at a time when Mark Benioff was very much like, I want founders. I saw a few practices that were really positive. I mean, one I alluded to, which is that Mark made time for founders. He would have quarterly lunches. Everybody was different, I guess, but I knew that I was always able to find time with him. Second, he would kind of bring founders into conversations where they weren't supposed to be by, by normal corporate ladder structure. So that occasionally happened where it'd be, you know, you get a note from Mark saying, hey, can you get on the plane and come to this meeting? Let's come, come have dinner, come see what we're doing here. Third was related to that, if there were like, top executive offsites, top 100, would get that call, get the opportunity to be there, get a chance to network with other peer executives and kind of be into the loop of things. And then, you know, something that I actually will take a little credit for at Salesforce was 
I remember saying like, hey, can we just get everyone together? Because a bunch of the founders, we would see each other at these like regular events, but we never like had a thing for us. So we did do that. He's Mark was like, I sent him a note. He said, yeah, sure. Organize it. <laughs> so, so I did. And then I, I think continued on. And I think it's been a great tradition. And we definitely do something similar here at Shopify where founders get together once a year. And then it is a really both fun, but also productive thing for retaining founders. Are there things that you learn specifically from interacting with Benioff that you've taken with you as you continue to build companies and products? I learned a lot from him, uh, both by watching and being around the organization. I think the number one thing was he is a visionary in terms of talking about where things are going to go and being able to articulate that. I think I learned a lot about storytelling and marketing from him. I learned a lot about mass media and understanding centering. Often startups and marketing people are very focused or, or like, Startup CEOs or founders are like, this is my one chance to tell my story. And one thing I definitely learned from Mark, we were launching a product and it went well, got a lot of press coverage. And maybe two months later, he's like, great, we're going to launch this again. And I was like, Mark, we already launched it. And he's like, Daniel, do you think anybody really remembered or noticed? Like there were a thousand news stories that day. If we do this again with a slightly different variation, very few people are going to notice. And I'm paraphrasing, so Mark, don't get mad at me. <laughs> but it, it was like, we're going to launch it and then launch it again and then launch it again. And I was like, wow, that's kind of great because he was aware of how the rest of the world saw in rather than the way that we often see it, which is like, everybody's paying attention to me. And his point was like, no, no one's paying attention at all. You have to really repeat yourself and be out there a lot to get attention, especially today. So wanted to sort of take a left turn and talk a little bit about actually running an M&A process as a startup. I think this is an area that's just like highly under discussed. I think it's one of the few areas in company building that's still like a black box. And given that you've done it multiple times over your career where you started a business and chose to sell it to an at scale business, I thought we could kind of explore that area and maybe hear some of your ideas around how should a founder think about it and execute on it. Let's say it's a founder that's reaching out to you for advice and they're like, hey, I'm deciding whether I want to sell the business and how to go about it. I'm sure you get those calls all the time. What if I listen to like five of them? What are the commonalities in terms of perspectives or ideas you tend to share with those founders? Yeah, that I do. I've been lucky. I've invested in a lot of great companies and a lot of great founders and I do get those calls. The first question I ask, and by the way, it's the same question I ask when they're like, how much money should I raise? What should I do? When should I do it? Is always to ask, what do you want from this journey that you're on? And it sounds a bit philosophical, but it's really important. I mean, one of the beauties of being a founder is you have autonomy generally and self-actualization that you're on this journey to do it. That's probably why a lot of people want to do it. So the question is, are you trying to maximize the amount of money that comes? Are you trying to stop the pain that you've been going through because this has been so hard? Are you trying to move into a different risk return program? Like, what is it that you personally want? What would make you happy? And I often think that is a really important place to start because frankly, that's not often asked of the founder. There's so many other people who have a lot of interests going, but I think that's a pretty important question. The second thing is to don't believe your own bullshit and have a really accurate assessment of where the company really is and what are your go forward prospects? Like what has to happen for you to grow into the valuation you just accepted or for the next round? What do you really think is happening with your pipeline? And this is hard for a lot of founders because you have to live in this like dual state of like, everything's awesome and everybody's excited. And then like inside you're like, oh, it's all horrible. Yeah. And that's hard and that's founder life all the time. But you have to kind of be pretty honest with yourself about where this is because you do have a responsibility more than your own needs for self-actualization. You have a team, you have investors. And I've always viewed that as pretty important. Investors, you have like a sacred trust to these people. They trust you. You should try and do the best you can for them especially employees as well. These are people who believed in you. So that's probably where I start is like, what is it you want and where are you realistically as you start to go down the path of like, should you sell or how do you go about that sales process? And so we can come up with some hypothetical scenarios. Let's say that you've been building for a while. The company's kind of working, but it's not on fire. It's most likely going to be hard to raise more capital. And, you know, you've only raised five or 10 million. So you're in a position where you could find a landing for the business, for example. And let's say they want to balance both getting the right price, but they also don't want to be an indentured servant forever at a heinous company that they're going to hate waking up every day. And so they're looking for some pragmatic outcome. What should they actually do? Like, I'm excited to chat about this with you because I actually don't know that most founders in that position 
even know where to begin now as they think about exiting the business? I think you have to get rid of this mindset of like, am I going to sell the company? The answer is you, you will sell the company. Everybody sells the company. Let's be clear. When you sell shares in your company to a venture firm, you have sold part of the company. The question you're really asking is, do I sell all the company now or just part of the company? Because if you're going to go raise money, you're still selling part of the company. If you go public, you're selling the company, right? You're going to have to do it. And so you can do that in different flavors, but the zero to one of like, I'll never sell, it's never going to happen. I think that can be destructive. And so there's probably a more realistic assessment that you're in somewhat of that middle ground. Okay. But to go back to your immediate question, I think the first thing I think about of selling the businesses, and you're right, I've been part of a few of them and definitely helped a bunch of investees go through the process is, okay, thing one is you don't actually sell your company to another company. There is no such thing as a company. It's an imaginary legal construct. There are people who work together in a group, and that means that you're going to have to sell your company to a group of people who happen to work together in a company. This may sound like semantics, but it's not. Because once you understand that it's like, okay, well, I have to actually convince some people that they want to buy my company, it becomes more of a tractable problem. Not like, I have to sell my company to Twilio. I have to sell them to Twilio. Well, no, no, actually, you have to get Jeff Lawson to see that this thing is a solution to a problem that they have. And that's very different. So when I think about the steps that one has to go through, first of all, I actually think if you can, you should not start this process when you're at the moment that you're at, which is like, oh, well, it's grinding. I might be able to raise money or not. Like, you should always be thinking about building relationships with executives at large companies. Maybe this is contrary to what others would say, but these are business development relationship, partnership relationships. And yes, maybe they are acquisition relationships. You don't have to be as explicit. But I can tell you it's sure as hell explicit when you call up and you're like, hey, we're running a process. Do you want to buy us? Well, that's actually not a great spot. But it's a great spot if you're like, have met an executive who runs a business unit that is complimentary or competitive or whatever it is. And you're like, have met them five or six times at industry events, or you've gone in for a conversation and you maybe have a mentor relationship and you're like, hey, I'm really thinking about what the next steps are. And I know you have this issue or this problem. And I was wondering whether we could talk about whether I could help you solve that problem. That's a different conversation. And I think that it is something that we did definitely at Ripple, definitely at Helpful was we maintained relationships like this all the way through the journey. It's not like we were in a sales process. It's not like we were trying to sell the business all the way through, but we kept them sort of in the air and real. And we're like actively using it as a way to figure out what was going on in the market. But then when the time came and this thing kind of coalesces, it was very natural and normal to call up five or six people and say like, hey, should we have this conversation? And they trust you, by the way, because you're not giving some bogus, oh yeah, I'm, you know, there's eight other companies really interested when you're like, no, really, there's like, there's a couple other people I'm probably going to exit. Do you want to talk about that? If that's the conversation, you're in a way better spot to begin with. But that to me is one of the most important things to understand is you sell it to a person, an executive who has a problem. And usually you as the CEO who are going to go work for that executive are the solution. You're going to take your IP and your company and your team, but also yourself. And so you really want to build that relationship of trust well in advance of trying to start any process. So that's a good framing and a great place to jump off from. Any thoughts on how to go about building those relationships and maybe what to do in those conversations that's not just a bunch of random catch-ups? Because I assume one of the important things is as you're interfacing and starting to build these long-term relationships that might provide value to you in all sorts of different ways, like you need the person to think you're awesome and smart and good. And so I'm curious if you have thoughts on what you should actually be doing in those meetings or how to structure it so it's not just a bunch of random catch-ups. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, first of all, it's not the end of the world to have a random catch-up, but I agree you can do a lot better than that. So the first point is like map out who in the industry, who are the organizations that you think could be likely partners or acquirers, right? And partners is a real thing. Like definitely can be in their ecosystem. You could do an equity investment. It's a continuum of that conversation. Our conversation with Salesforce when we were acquired was about them investing in us. And, and then as the journey unfolded, the M&A team and Mark just decided like, we're going to buy this company. So it doesn't have to always be as explicit. So what is it that you want to have as a useful conversation? Well, where are the interests aligned? Where is something that you as a startup have that would help this big company sell more, sell faster, sell in a different way, sell to a different market? How would it make their product better? It's on you as the startup to kind of paint that picture. 
one thing that just blows me away, and it is something that I've done before. I mean, in fact, I remember meeting with Mark and what I did is I spent time with one of my designers and I said, like, here's the Salesforce UX. Let's design what it would look like for Ripple to exist inside of that UX. So when we went there and we were talking about partnering, you know, it wasn't just imaginary. I was like, here, we've thought it through. This is what it looked like. And let me take you through the steps of how this would be used. What would be the use cases? That is value added. And that is helpful, right? Like that is like, okay, I can see you're painting a picture, a storytelling about how these two teams could work together. I think that is pretty helpful. So how do you find these people? I think that's part of the magic of being a networker as a CEO. You're going to call your VCs. You're going to go to industry events. You're going to go and network your way to get those important connections and invitations. I think another tactic that is useful is just sharing information. You don't even have to have a meeting all the time. It's like, hey, I read this article. I thought this was interesting. What do you think about this? I saw this thing happening. We've seen it. I get those emails from founders all the time. I'm actually quite appreciative often when they're sort of trying to connect with me and tell me what's going on. I think actually probably worth also saying is there's an important moment when you have to tip from like, hey, I'm just building a relationship. It is partnership. It could be this to like just being direct. Because I think there is a real frustration on the opposite side when a founder is being too smart, too cute. And you're like, it's clear you're running a process. It's clear you're trying to sell your company, but you just simply won't say that. That is not helpful. <laughs> like, just say it. And they're going to know and they're going to be able to run through it. Often the company can move quicker if you're explicit about what's going on. You talked a little bit about this, but are the ideal people just senior GME product lead type people that operate in complementary spaces? Because I think to your point, a lot of founders who haven't sold businesses think that everything's about the M&A team or corp dev team. And in some cases, that's the case. But in most cases, I think you did a great job of articulating it. It's about finding a business leader who has a specific problem that your team or your product solves for them. And so just anything else on who the best types of people, the appropriate seniority to senior to junior, anything to keep in mind there. Yeah. So first of all, I don't like the rules of thumb, like never talk to the corporate M&A people. They're terrible. That is a very bad piece of advice in my mind. Sometimes they're really good. Like I remember for us at Salesforce, it was Vili Ilchev, who's now a partner at Two Sigma, a great VC, but he was running M&A. He called me on the phone cold and said, hey, you know, we've seen your stuff. Would you want to talk? And we just became friendly. Like we talked for a while and he then opened up a lot of doors to introduce us to people inside the org. We didn't really know that many people and helped us to map out. But it was a patient process where like, we would build relationships and he helped guide us. So I don't know if it's, this is a universal truth that you should not work with or trust those folks. But I do think if you're picking up from me that like, it is far more important inside of a company to understand that like, very rarely does M&A have the ability to just buy a company. I think Shopify has one of the most advanced and interesting approaches, the people who run our M&A team, and we don't even call it M&A, it's called product acceleration. And the people who run it are like very senior product leaders. So the person who used to run our platform business, the person who used to run our talent acquisition, the person who used to run our marketplace business. So yeah, I think there's no, you shouldn't be scared of the, those people in the right way. Having said that, it is almost impossible for a corp dev team to acquire a company without some sponsorship from a senior executive inside of a company. In fact, it is impossible. Someone has to put their hand up and say, like, I own this thing. And also remember, often most companies like, hey, you are running this business. You have 300 heads allocated to grow for next year and you have 3,000 people who work for you, whatever it is. Well, if they buy your 50 person company, that's 50 heads out of that 300. It's usually like, this is a cost I'm going to incur. And I'm just making a business decision to acquire this company to accelerate where I need to get to. So it is vital that you build relationships. But to your question about, does it have to be the GM? No, no, it doesn't have to be. I think it's a great idea to build relationships of high technical connection where like technical people inside of a larger org really trust and respect the technical people in your organization. If you're a technical founder, building that relationship with engineering leaders matters. But in all cases, the commonality is, as you pointed out, you are solving a problem, a business problem for a business leader or a technical leader at the acquire. Anything else on the idea of understanding the psychology of the buyer that a founder might not know or is useful to keep in mind as they're navigating something like an M&A transaction? There's a few things, but one thing that's really important to understand is that executives in big 
companies who are tech executives are not VCs. And what do I mean by that? I mean that like, if your experience in raising money or going through a transaction, which is this a transaction, is trying to create a frenzy of a bunch of VCs who are bidding against you. You know, VCs want to win the business. They want to win the deal. And frankly, they'll put up with a bunch of founder bullshit. <laughs> and not always, like they're not, you know, VCs will walk away and say, this person's not acting with an integrity or they're being flaky and I don't want to do business. But their level is higher because they don't have to deal with you day to day. They just need the results. And you're part of a portfolio of bet they're taking. And so the dynamic and the forgiveness of quirky behavior or arrogance or excess commercial behavior is much higher. And like every VC knows, you're just pushing for the highest valuation. You're doing this stuff and okay. When you're dealing with corporate executives, they don't want to have wild cards that they're dealing with. And if you act like someone who will not be a team player when you show up, if you act entitled, if you're arrogant, if you're not a listener to the person when you're having a conversation, if you act as if, oh yeah, of course you have to buy me because you guys are idiots. You don't know anything. Well, like, it's just human nature. They don't necessarily have to pull the trigger. They might be like, I don't want to work with this person. And I think that's actually a really important point. Like, no matter how much you get paid, you're still going to work there for a while. It is very rare for an acquisition to happen when the founder doesn't have to sign up for a period of time, 18 months, two years, three years. And so what that means is like you're sitting across the table from this executive. You have to make them want to like you because they're going to have to work with you for three years. And it's job injury. Like, it's just that simple. And so if you act like a flake or a jerk or arrogant in the way that maybe you thought you could have gotten away with when you were raising funds, that is not going to play well. And so I would definitely suggest that is not an attitude that will go over really well through that M&A process. How do your ideas map to the person that reaches out on the M&A team and is interested in talking to you a year into the company? Given what you've said, is it when people inbound you, your strategy is to take a first meeting and nurture that as kind of the default? Or how do you think about it? No, I mean, look, there's nothing wrong to say like, hey, I'm super focused on building the business right now. We're no interest in selling the company. What I would really love is to do a call with you in a month or so. And if you could bring an executive who would be relevant to us about how we could partner with you, that would be a really great conversation that we could have. That's totally respectful, totally reasonable for you to do. And, you know, I think it's fair and incumbent upon the M&A team to do that. Often the M&A teams will be tasked with like, go talk to 40 companies in the space or 20 companies, gather up a data set so that, you know, an executive can then evaluate who are the ones they want to talk to. I think it's okay for you to push back. The other thing you can do is you get that call. You're like, oh, XYZ company. Well, who do we know there? Who's the exact, where's this coming from? Like you don't feel you want to go direct through the corp dev route and just kind of give all the data. When I say build relationships, I'm not saying get on the phone and say, here's all the stats, here's our ARR, here's how much we're growing. Thank you very much. I wouldn't recommend that. I don't think that's good. So we're going to come back to the actual transaction process, but something we haven't talked about, how do you think about involving and talking to investors about this? And maybe just at the very beginning, there's often trepidation. There's a lot of implicit or explicit pressure that a founder feels to never, quote, give up and just build this thing forever. What about having those conversations with your investors? I just have found that the best relationships are one that are predicated upon honesty and mutual understanding of interests and being honest about them. And look, hey, let's be honest. A, me and Mr. Investor, we are very closely aligned, but not entirely aligned, primarily because this is my entire bet and you have multiple bets to make. But we're pretty aligned that we both want to do the best we can and raise and do well on this investment, right? And I think if you can have conversations like that, you're better off than being squirrely and information controlling. I'm not saying you have to tell everybody who's in your deal, but it's much better to have one or two investors who you build a thing of trust about and you're like, hey, I'm exploring this. What do you think? And they might say, well, that's a bad idea right now. That's okay. That's good. Get some feedback. Get some advice on how to do it. But like, you know, investors are not happy when you're like, everything's amazing. We're going to go crush it. And then you show up and you're like, I've got this M&A deal. I want to sell the company. They're like, what? What happens? You have to get them to where you need them to be about why it is the right decision. And that takes time. It takes honesty. These are your partners in the business. They have invested money. They are real human beings that have put time and energy into you. You probably should have a conversation. And I don't think that being realistic and pragmatic is a bad thing. Like, I don't know who told every young founder out there that like, 
you have to say, I'm building the next Tesla. And if I die before getting there, that's the only two outcomes I get to. Like it's zero or trillion. Most VCs are pretty sophisticated. They understand that there's a range of outcomes between SpaceX or Tesla and a hole in the ground. There's lots of happy outcomes actually in the middle. And sometimes I think they're like pragmatically happy if you're like, okay, this isn't working as well as we want, or like this exit's probably not going to be 6 billion, but we could do 50 million today. Everybody gets their money back or maybe makes a little bit and move on. That's better. I don't think you lose face with a sophisticated investor by being honest and pragmatic. I think what's worse is you show up and you're like, I'm running out of money. It's either we have to sell for this and we're dead. Like, actually, it's better to be like, I think we might not make it. We should do this thoughtfully. We have time to figure out how to do this. I think every VC I know would much prefer that, just an honest conversation, than being so full of bravado. And by the way, this actually does go to another point, which is, I think founders, by being exclusively focused on getting the highest valuation for their companies, they kill optionality for what they're trying to do. And when I say highest valuation in a funding run, I'm not talking about the exit price, but you can price yourself out of a really happy outcome for everybody because the price that you really insisted on was so high that the pref stack is so big that nobody's going to make money other than the people on the pref stack. And therefore you have no options. You want to maintain a range of possibilities all the way through the journey as best you can. And part of that is like, what is the valuation you're raising? to get to the next level so that if you do get to a place where like, yeah, we actually would want to exit instead of having like, there's only two people in the world who could pay this much to get everybody money back. There's actually 25 companies that could acquire you and everybody would be happy. That's a better place to be in my mind. I think it's oftentimes more so amount of dollars raised than it is specific valuation, but those two things often go hand in hand. And you oftentimes remove the potential for a win-win sort of dynamic when you start to raise very, very large amounts of capital, particularly before something's really working. I think that's probably underappreciated. I also think to your point about working with relatively sophisticated investors, I think particularly when you've raised, call it five, 10, 15 million, the business model of a venture investor is that you have a very small number, most of the time, less than 5% of the investments that you make that are power law and drive the whole business. And I often have found that Founders overthink about their investors and try to cater to them around the M&A process, particularly if it's a good outcome, but not an amazing outcome. And they end up sort of putting themselves in a terrible position to get their investor another three cents on the dollar. It's a big part of the way that we think about the world. I think good investors, I think there are bad investors that would be happy to get another two cents on the dollar, even if it meant you were at some horrible company you had to deal with. But I think in general, if you have sophisticated, good investors, you should actually be optimizing not on the margin for another two cents, but like to your point, what is the best next chapter for you in the business over the next two, three, five years? I completely agree with you with one caveat. So no question, sophisticated investors know it's a long-term game. They know that they want the founder and also, frankly, all the future founders who often come out of an acquisition because they saw it and they learned and they're like, I'm going to go do my thing. They want them to land in the right place with the right opportunity and everybody does well. And they're willing to trade off a little bit of, as you said, points on the dollar generally. With the caveat that you treat them with respect all the way through. If it becomes just about money, you're the enemy, I'm going to max out, then they're not going to have as much patience and time for like, well, what's the right outcome for this founder? If you, if you as a founder treat your investors as partners and treat them with respect and transparency all the way through the journey, and they know that you are trying your best to either get them the money back or get some amount of pennies on the dollar, I think they have a lot more patience for like, okay, let's find the right place for you and like, let's get the right deal so that you're not miserable for the next two or three years. Yeah, totally. Looping back to the process, so let's say that a founder has taken your advice and over the last couple of years, they started to develop a handful of somewhat substantial relationships at five companies that may be a fit to acquire their business. What should they do now? I think the sort of high level is you want to start with your most likely and most close and feel them out. Have a conversation, as I alluded to earlier, try and be relatively upfront. And you want to try and get your somewhat solid opportunity, or maybe it's like a this is a bit of a game theory, but you got to try and like pick the one that you think is going to be most likely to be like, yeah, we're really interested. Because one thing I've learned is it's way better to not bluff. <laughs> it's way better to just tell the truth. Meaning 
you call up the others and you're like, hey, there is a very serious company, very seriously interested in buying us. And I know we've talked four times over the past three years. And I know we had this talk about how we could help you with this thing. If you really think that's a thing that could happen, now would be the time to have that conversation. Do you think that you could move the organization? Do you think you're in a place where you could do that to be part of us coming to join you and me coming to work with you? I think that's a conversation you have to have. And you kind of run that cycle and you find out, okay, who's actually in this game? And that can take a few weeks, month. And then once you have a few of them, you try to line up that process. You want to discover, by the way, this is just like enterprise selling. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you about. I think a lot of people that don't do sales regularly don't understand how much of it is an act of discovery. And I was curious maybe how those ideas translates to this early part of the M&A process. Yes, yes. I was about to say, like, you talk to your champion, hopefully the person you've built trust with, that executive, and you, you say, look, I want to learn about what happens next. And you just ask, who has to make this decision? Like, does it have to go to the CEO? Does it have to go to the board? What is the M&A team's role? Who else do you think would be a key stakeholder to be part of this? How long does it take? What kind of diligence do you think you'd want to know? So that's first part. Second part is like a sales process that you were selling. Like if you do enterprise selling, you've got to have all your decks and your demos and you've sort of done it before. You don't want to be making it up the night before. I think on the side of the founder, you want to have a small team internally, like two or three people max generally, because you don't want to distract everybody else from like, oh my God, we're doing the sales process. That is not a good thing. You do not want to be in that way. So you get that small team together and you gather all the materials and you prepare, you have everything. So that if they say, okay, we got you a meeting, come in and give your demo, open up your data room. Like, I think there's a lot of work you can do to demonstrate the professionalism and the reality of your process versus it'll take us a month to get the data room together and then we'll give it to you. Like nothing says this is a real thing than having a data room established that you share the link and the team can start doing their evaluations all the way through it. So I think once you've had that conversation, you've done the discovery, have yourself ready, be effective at communicating it. And it's okay to sort of like nudge towards a deadline. My goal is to try and have this done by X. That's what we're trying to aim for. And you should tell people that because then people get motivated around. If you don't put a deadline, remember, there's lots of other people who are trying to sell their companies to the same place. The corp dev team is busy. They're probably doing another big transaction. And so you want to make it easy for them to do this. You don't want to make it difficult by having everything ready and by having a timeline, being upfront. I think that's a really effective way to kind of move things along. If someone hasn't done this before, what are clear buying signs like that this company is actually a likely acquirer versus tire kicking or faux interest or whatever you might call it? Yeah. Well, one of them as we alluded to is executive access and the most being the CEO. When they're setting up a meeting for you to go have lunch or have dinner with the CEO of a company, they're very interested, I think. The CEOs I know tend to be very busy people. You don't get on the calendar and they're certainly not doing that to tire kick. I think another one would be just the time that you get with executives and the quality of how deep they're going around what could possibly be there. And also a third would be a conversation about like, what do you want, founder? Where do you want to spend the next period? What do you want to work on? How would you envision yourself? And like, you should be ready for those questions. Like, I don't know. I'll see what I would do. Maybe I would work here. Maybe I wouldn't. That's not a good one. <laughs> it's like, I really want to work on this problem for the next three years. I'm really excited about what we could do. Here's why the company that you have would add value. Here's my demo of what I think it would look like. You want to kind of have answers for those questions, I think. But the buying signals are like when they're asking those things. Specific questions about your cap table, who your investors are, what is your revenue? People often get scared by those questions, but I'm like, that's a sign that they're probably serious about what they're looking for here. How do you think about getting to price? or ever mentioning price or forcing them to figure out price or actual numbers? I mean, yeah, look, everyone's always worried about anchoring and things like that. There is a number that you can always talk about, which is a great starting point, and it's not anchoring, which is like, this is what we did our last round at. This is how much the company was valued at before. And by the way, what you also want to do to your point about tire kickers is use that as a qualification relatively early on. And so you say, like, this is what the company was valued. Like, and there's two very different scenarios, right? There's the scenario, we are actually growing. We can sustain the valuation we had. This is a business that could go raise more money. And then there's the other case where it's like, you probably can't go raise more money. You're definitely going to be below that valuation. In that case, what you want to talk about is like, this is how much cash has been put into the business, which is really saying, here's how much cash you'd have to pay back to pay back my investors, which is often the number around where people are thinking. And just the dynamic to understand, and I don't think I'm telling tales at a school here, is that like, 
when it's an Apple hire or a situation like that, in fact, it's any situation, like the company doesn't necessarily want to pay your investors. They mostly want to give the money to the founders. Correct. Which is a whole interesting dynamic. Yeah. 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 This is really important to understand. And I think, by the way, that's a really important point to be very transparent with your investors with. And again, because I'll keep saying this, it's a repeat game. I've been part of doing this a few times. And then we've seen this happen where like I was involved in a deal where we sold it, everyone was sort of okay. And then, wow, the hate-filled phone calls from other investors saying, did you hear what this guy did and what the package they took? They literally siphoned, you know, people want to sue you when that happened. Because it's like allocation of consideration for the company goes immediately to the founder. Now, some of that happens normally because everyone understands that they're buying the founder, they need to keep them around, there has to be retention. But I think it's well worth it to be transparent about that all the way through the process. I think I got a bit off track from your question though. No, I think that's a very important and very nuanced dynamic because the acquirer wants to give as little consideration to the cap table as possible, assuming it's some more aqua hire sub tens of millions of dollar price. And there's all sorts of shenanigans that end up happening because of that, I think. Yeah. And just, sorry, your question was really about price. So I think those two are good anchor points or like, here's the price. And you can say, do you think that you would be able to exceed this price? You're not asking them that you're anchoring on that, but you're like, obviously to sell the business, if you're a growing business and you have the valuation, you're like, well, we want to sell for significantly more than what we did our last round at. And before we spend a heck of a lot of time, if we were amazing and you loved us and we could show you why it made sense, do you think your company could get there? And some M&A teams, they should be able to say, yeah, no, there's no way that we would do that. Sorry, let's not waste your time in ours. That's the other thing is like the people on the other side do not want to waste time. Like the tire kicking idea is less real than I think people give credit to. <laughs> people are busy. They don't want to waste time on a deal that like at the end, they're like, oh, there's total disconnect between what was possible and what was not possible. At some point, yeah, pick your number. What's the number that you think is reasonable? What's the number that would make you happy, your investors happy? Just say it. This is what it is. This is what I think what it would take to get a deal done. Do you think you can get there? And they're going to come back and say, no, that's totally impossible. And you say, okay. Then it's like probably beyond the ambit of this conversation, which is like, how do you negotiate in that round? But I don't think people should be so scared about this is the number. Here's why. This is what we think it would take clear. And you are way, way, way better to have that conversation after you have articulated and created credibility over time that there are multiple people who would want to buy this company at that price. That is the main thing that you have, which is the belief by the buyer or the executive that if they don't hit that bid, someone else will and you will go. And so that's really incredibly important all the way through. The most important thing from that price perspective is to create and mostly create it through reality. <laughs> Bluffing is hard is what I'm trying to say, but create perception, bait grant into reality that there is an alternate bidder always. And that creates the competitive tension that gets you to a price that's fair. I also say another thing. One of my mentors was a billionaire investor and he had this great line. He said, don't be too tough and don't be too smart. And it's a really good line about negotiating, which is like, don't try and optimize for the last dollar. Something you mentioned when we started to talk about the process, was it that you want to talk to the most likely acquirer first? or the acquirer that you are most interested in having acquire your business? Yeah, good question. First of all, this is all rules of thumb. Like it doesn't always work out this way. You kind of got to roll and then adapt and be entrepreneurial. That's what you are as a founder as these things happen. But, you know, if you could set up a perfect scenario, you'd have like four or five potential bidders. There's one who is like the one that you know desperately wants you and has all sorts of reasons they want to be there. And maybe that's aligned with the one that you want to be at. That's the best situation. But maybe it's not the one you really want to be at, but it's okay. So you probably want to talk to them first and get that process being credible so that when you turn to call the one that you really want to be at that's interested, you can say, look, there is a process. It is for real. It's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. Would you be open to having that conversation with us? And this is the key point. You want to be really credible that that's happening. And if you've got bidder number one, who's not really where you want to be, but they're willing to pay up, you might get then to the bidder number two who might not pay as much, but you're like, that's okay. That's good for everybody. And it's going to be way better for the team, way better for me. I'm okay going for the lower number that you go to them after you've already established that first point of interest, because now you have like credibility that is helpful. And of course, look, maybe 
others are way better poker players than me. I just think that that is a very hard bluff to keep up over a multi-week or month process. Yeah. Bill Gurley used to have this line, it's the dark arts. He uses it in a fundraising context. I think it works in M&A, where a very small number of humans can pull off the dark arts. But if you are not one of them and you are playing with the dark arts, it will blow up your entire thing entirely. That is a great, it builds a smart guy. That is a really good metaphor. Yeah. I think it works in fundraising as well, right? The classic example is telling an investor you have a term sheet when you don't. In a vast majority of cases, that will create a catastrophic situation in the process. But if you're the master of dark arts, you may be able to pull it off, but you better be damn sure that you are. You touched on a couple of these things that I would put on in the do not do list. And I'm curious, is there anything else you'd put there for first time founders who are thinking about M&A? Like an example in if you're raising venture capital is like a do not do is tell in almost all cases, tell the investor, the other investors you're talking to and where they are in the process. You want to allude to it. Well, it's all the other folks that you would imagine I would be talking to, but it's a very, very bad idea to tell them specific names or partners. That's kind of like an obvious example. But are there other things to be really careful of if you've never done this, sort of put it in the do not do bucket? Obviously, that one is a a really important one. Another one is like, don't bullshit easy numbers, easy things. There's just such a tendency, again, to like hype and sell, but you're going to get caught up. You said this in your first meeting, it's not that number now. What's going on? What happened? And again, these are people trying to evaluate, do we trust you? Do we trust you to come work here for three years or two years to help us build this new business and solve this problem? And I think the other thing to understand is that like very often, the people who are saying, yes, we should buy this company are betting either their entire or some of their career on you. Appreciate that. Appreciate that they are betting. If it goes kablooey, if, as you said, the dark arts blow up, it's blowing up in their face too. So these people are going to really be trying to figure out, are you full of shit or not? And you just don't want to do that. And it's easy stuff. You just don't have to do it. You don't, there's no need to. They're going to find it out anyways. Why not just be straight up front? The other part I put on that is being like too cute with like the definitions of your numbers or like your performance or your retention. Oh yeah, we define it this way, but no one does it that way. And it made it look 20% better or 30% better. Why would you do that? I'll tell you a do not do one that's sort of maybe not in the same way that you were thinking about it. Do not think the deal is over just because they said no (laughs) or just because they walked away. Another great mentor of mine said, all great deals are lost before they're won. And like, that happens. Deal falls apart or someone says no. That might be the moment when you have to rally. So you really can't give up on this journey. You have to be quite relentless as you're going through it. Don't give up. Something you just touched on, any rules of thumb on when to get specific about any numbers in the business, share cap table? Is there a certain amount of seriousness or pre-qual you want to be doing? Or maybe it's a judgment call. Like I said, I think the test is how much time are you getting in front of the business decision makers? And if you can't get any of that, it's really hard to share. Having said that, though, there's another flip side, which is like being so opaque up front is not helpful, right? Like, what is your revenue? How many employees do you have? What's your cap table? What was your last rent? These are basic fair questions for someone to ask because they're trying to assess, should we spend time on you? Why would you hesitate? Just tell them. If you, especially if you're like, we are in the process, we want to do it. It's a very clear sign. You're like, this is for real. Here's what it is. You're not going to like fool them into buying. Let's put it that way. Like they're going to find out what your revenue is. They're going to find out what your losses are. They're going to find out how many employees you have at some point. And if you think that there's some dark thing in there that like would make them change their mind, you don't want to waste time on them. Like any good salesperson will tell you like half the art is to just call out all the no's early so that you spend the times on the potential yeses. I think this is a temptation because you're thinking, oh, I've got to have like six balls in the air to make this a real competitive dynamic. Not really. Two is fine. Three is better. But like you don't need nine companies that are bidding for you. I mean, if that happens, God bless you. But <laughs> but like qual out the ones who are not real and then focus in on the few real credible opportunities is much better. So as we get into the last couple topics, any other rituals or strategies that would be useful for founders to keep in mind? One sort of example, actually, that came to mind for me that overlaps with something you were sharing earlier is one of our founders a number of years ago was 
it's kind of mid-flight in a transaction. And one of the normal things, you know, if you're a 50 or 60 person company is the acquirer, depending on the amount, may want to interview all or a portion of your team. And one of the things I was just so impressed with is he took a day with the company and rehearsed the entire thing. Every interview question they could think of when the person comes into the office, like restage the entire thing and help script and develop people's answers and create alignment in the company. It was just like done at a level of painstaking detail that I've never seen before. And so I was curious in sort of that spirit, are there other things that might be useful for a founder to have in their tool belt that they might not know that you might be able to share with them? So, I mean, I don't know if I have every answer, but like to, to expand on your point, yes, to practice, please, with your teams before you go down. I think the other thing is keep the circle small at first, like really, really small. I mean, when we were selling WorkBrain, I was head of corp dev and marketing. And frankly, we had gone through some processes and it expanded the pool and it really threw everyone for a loop. We were a public company, right? And the time that we went through it the last time, it was literally just like me and the CEO up until we had to bring in the CFO, to bring in the COO. And people were a little bit like egos were hurt, but it was like important to keep it very focused in a small group so that everyone else focused on like the most important thing, which is running the business and not being distracted. Because this is a very distracting thing when this happens, okay? Everybody gets a little weird. So I think your point brings up a really important point, which is like, there are one-way doors, there are two-way doors. Like once you tell everyone that there's a sales process and everyone has to go for an interview, all bets are off. That definitely changes things in the company. So you got to be really cautious and confident before you go through that, that this is the right thing, the right place. Having said that, it is very reasonable, especially in an aqua hire, for people to want to interview the folks that they're going through, or at least a sample of those folks. So they get a sense of the quality of the talent. It depends on the number of how many people. I think I alluded to one before, which is it's much better for you, the acquiree, to articulate a vision of how your products will work with the acquirer. Do the demo, do the workout, show it being integrated, show how it already works together. Like that is making everybody's job easier. And it really shows that you're excited and interested in being part of this acquirer. It makes a big difference. Not everybody does it. It sounds so easy, right? Like just mock it up. I think it's a really good practice. I think you're right on the interviews. I actually know um, my co-founder, Barnan Thawar, he was telling me about an acquisition process that he had gone through in one of his prior companies. And they literally had school because they knew that the top 10 people were going to have to do these very detailed technical interviews. And like every day after work, they all came in and they drilled and practiced on the technical interviews so that they would ace. I think that is a really great idea. I'll give you another practice that I think was really helpful for us, which is just like in enterprise sales, map out who you know, who is influential and has relationships at that company that you know. Is there a person on the board of the company that's acquiring you that one of your investors know? Is there an advisor? At some point, you might want to reach out and say like, hey, look, confidentially. We're thinking to get acquired by XYZ company. I know you know the CEO. I don't ask for a lot, but I would really appreciate if you let them know that A, we're excited and B, like tell them what you think about us. That makes a huge difference in the process. If you can get a board member or an investor or someone in the circle of trust who can vouch for you, really, really crucial, I think makes a big difference in the likelihood of the trust level going up of like, why should we take a bet on this group? You just touched on this, but any thoughts on messaging either to the inner circle as you're thinking about this or to the broader team and any do's and don'ts before we talk and wrap up on post-acquisition success? You want to be like, hey, we're at this point. You want to be transparent about why and what's going to happen. What you need to understand is the second you say we are selling the company. <laughs> Someone told me this one. Everyone listens to one radio station, WIIFM. What's in it for me? Yep. In almost all things, doing a riff, someone leaving, everyone is thinking, what does it mean for me? What does it mean for me? And so you, the founder, are super excited. You are like, oh, I've been working on this for eight years and like, we're going to make some money and my dreams come true or the pain stops or whatever it is. But they're just thinking about, wait, what happens to my equity? What's going to happen to my job? Am I going to get fired? These are real concerns. And so I think you have to lead with some serious empathy when that occurs. Let me answer your questions. You have to have the time to like go through that at first positively. You can't just be a cheerleader. You're like, hey, this is what I think is going to happen. Here's why. And I think you want to come prepared for those kind of questions. Don't show up and say, yay, we're doing this M&A transaction and you're all going to go get interviewed. And then people's hands shoot up and they say, well, what does that mean? Are we stopping the product? Should we keep working on this? What happens to my shares? What price is it? And you're like, well, let me get back to you. That is a bad scenario. You want people to walk into that meeting saying, 
my leader cares about me. This is a good thing for me. I might be a little anxious, but you know, they're doing the best they can to answer it. And I'm going to have some agency and control over my life, over what's going to happen next, which is a really important thing for people to have. Is there anything you should do when you're talking about the broader team? It seems like you're, again, rule of thumb, there's exceptions to all of this is to wait until you have a lot of confidence a deal is coming together because of the thrash that it can create. But there's also the nature of any M&A until it's done, it's not done and deals fall apart all the time. Is that need to be a part of the way when you're bringing the broader team into this, that you need to articulate that in some way, because there is a 2%, 5%, 30% chance the whole thing blows up? A hundred percent. And that's kind of what I was trying to get at is like, it is better to be honest about this, I think, than to try and pitch and spin and sell everybody on this thing. Because if it doesn't work out, you've lost all the credibility. And now you're left with a team who's like, this person's a liar. You didn't say any of this stuff. You said it was a done deal. This is a motion of trust where you're like, look, I'm going to bring you in, but here's what's going to happen. Here's what I think is going to happen. Here's what could happen. And you kind of keep people updated on that process as it's happening, as it's going through. And like, I should say, I didn't always get all this right. We're getting to benefit from all of your screw-ups in the past, you know. Oh, I've screwed this up. I'm sure some of my former teammates are like, what? You didn't do that. (laughs) (laughs) No, I know. I know. I know. I made a mistake. I should have done it differently. But now everyone can benefit. I guess just as we wrap up here, what about any big ideas or things to keep in mind on the other side of an M&A transaction? And maybe we can kind of go in two directions. Any thoughts you have on when there's a strategic product that is going to live on? And maybe any thoughts you have when maybe it's more of a talent-oriented acquisition? about maybe how to make the first week or month or quarter successful or just set you and your team up for a lot of success on the other side. Yeah, that's a whole podcast in of itself, but I'll try and think of a few thoughts. So I think the key thing to keep in mind is you are going to be there for a while and you are not the CEO anymore. You're an employee, you work there. And that is a hard transition. Like I think psychologically, you should prepare yourself for some psychological turmoil Going from like founder, you asked early, what's it like to be in a big company versus a founder? Well, like you transition and that is a mindset shift that you have to move into where you want to keep your amazing founderness and your ownership culture and the drive and the hustle. But you also have to recognize that you are now operating in a different environment where you can't just be constrained. You have other stakeholders, you have other peers, you have people who you work for who are above you. And that's really important. I think the thing for you to do as a founder is find other founder peers inside the company quickly find other executives you can trust and talk to people outside the company. Just on this topic alone, I've had probably four calls in the past six months of people who've been acquired. And they're like, how do I survive here? What's going on? This is so different. So it is disorienting and don't think you're weird or something's wrong with you. It's like, it is a psychological change. I mean, just frankly, just the tension release after going through the journey of being a founder, which is hard. And then like you did it, you made it to the other side. Like just that alone is disorienting. So two, I actually suggest if you can take some time off, give yourself a break. Your family probably wants you to be around your friends for a little bit of time. And most of the companies that acquire, you probably will understand that. I think the number one thing you want to do is build trust with people around you. And this is definitely something I messed up. No question about multiple. So if I had to do it again, I would learn like you come in and you keep your mouth shut. It is really annoying for people inside of a big company when smarty pants startup person, and let's be honest, right? Most people know that you probably made a ton of money. In some cases, you might have made more money than they're going to make in their career, and you might be junior to them, but you're still there. And so like, that is a thing. You got to be aware of it. And so leading with humility, asking questions, but not being a smart ass, like you guys are idiots. Why do you do this? Like that is not going to make you friends. Asking questions where you seek to understand and try to understand why did you make this choice? How does this place work? You have to get pretty good at organizational dynamics and understanding that. I think another thing that's helpful is to try and focus on the team and making sure that the first 90 days are like effective and successful. You're caring for your people. You're looking out for them. You're making sure that they're clarified. One thing that is important, though, is that you don't roll over when you get there. And this happened to me as well, where like you show up at big fancy company that you've admired for a long time and you're like, well, clearly everyone there knows exactly what to do with our product and how to distribute it and what to do. So I'm just going to follow what they tell us. That's actually a bad idea. There's a reason you got acquired. And it doesn't mean like you have to go make enemies, but it also doesn't mean you have to do everything that the machine tells you to do. If you just roll over with everything that the big company tells you, you might make mistakes that are not helpful. And, you know, it's okay to assert yourself a little bit around that. I think the other one is to not go too broad. 
stay focused on like achieving a very focused outcome for your integration of what you need to do. And then the last one is if you can, I mean, this is very situational, but like try to avoid the wholesale replatforming and rebuilding of your company. And related to that, try to maintain some sense of ability to strike your own deals and move things along. Like sometimes you get into a bigger company and they're like, well, this is how we do customer contract. This is how we sell. You can't do it our way. And that might really slow your momentum. And so if you find things like that, you want to go to your sponsor and say, look, I know that this is not a standard that we do at big company, but like this thing is going to kill the goose that you just bought. So can you please make sure that that doesn't get messed up? The first one is the most important that you are no longer, you're a founder, but you're not the CEO. You are an employee, you're an executive, and that's a different skill set. Actually, let me leave with this. I think most founders that I know who are really good founders are learners. They learn. They like are constantly trying to figure out the universe and they're humble to know that they don't understand what's going on in their business and their product or whatever it is. Don't stop being that when you come into a big company because it's easy to come in and be like, this is just it. I have to do my prison sentence and then I'm free. I can go do my own thing. That's a terrible way to spend your time and your life because believe it or not, there is a lot that you can learn by being an executive inside of a large organization. Even if you fully intend to go off as soon as your earnout is done to start another startup, you will be a way better founder if you really understand the dynamics of what happens in a large organization, how they sell, how they go to market, how the products work. Also, if you're lucky, what that CEO, who probably is a founder that inspired you, what do they think? What can you learn from them? A lot. I would definitely learn an enormous amount from Harley and Toby and the other executives here at Shopify. Those lessons are invaluable. So give yourself the space to be positive about it. Like there's going to be a period of mourning of like, it's almost like something died because our identity gets wrapped up in our company. But don't mourn forever. Embrace your new identity. Have fun at it. It's going to make your journey just so much better if you have that learner's mindset and a humility to know that you can learn a lot from these folks. And if you can figure out how to do the magic that you sort of talked about earlier, which is like, how do you grow something inside these large organizations? Then that's really fun. That's pretty awesome. Great place to end. Thank you so much, Daniel, for spending this time with us. My pleasure. I hope it was helpful. And I'm uh, D Debo on Twitter, D-D-E-B-O-W. I love actually engaging with founders. So if people want to follow me and DM me, DMs are open. I'm happy to follow up if I can. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. This was great. No problem.